Blog Talk Radio. Today, we're taking on the one subject that is certain to get all mothers talking, even those who claim to be apolitical. Education, which has been cut drastically, or they're trying to cut it drastically, and it seems to be part of continuing campaign of the War on Women. Good day and welcome to Momocrats Mama Chat, brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and I'm here today with Cinematic of K-12 News Network and Jaylith Judy of Care2.com and State of Discontent. Ladies, it's been a busy week. Good morning. Hi, Donna. Hey, Jaylith. Yeah, it just seems like unrelenting bad news, doesn't it? <laughs> well... I have to say, um, I, I do think we're continuing to see some good news out of North Africa mixed in with the bad, so at least there's that bright spot. But Yes. Well, let's talk more about that because um, it seems like, you know, Yemen continues to be really volatile and, you know, Egypt and Libya, uh, Libya is increasingly, um, I think there's great unrest there given that Gaddafi shows no sign of leaving when he's been invited to do so many a time by his own people. I think Gaddafi's pulling a Charlie Sheen on everybody. Mm. I mean, he's crazy. <laughs> did you, Did anyone see, um, I, I think it was the Daily Show, it might have been the Colbert Report, I was a little tired, last night where they edited in, um, they showed Christian Amanpour's interview with Gaddafi, and they edited in quotes from Charlie Sheen as if that were the translation. <laughs> so that wasn't just a great idea on my part. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that's apparently becoming a meme. Yeah, great comedic minds think alike, Donna and, you know, John Stewart's writing staff. So, yeah, unfortunately he... He is just not leaving, and I'm sort of wondering what it's going to take. I know in in the Egyptian case, um, the military um, was just astonishing in, in siding with the people and, and refusing to um, to do Mubarak's bidding. So, you know, I think it's really kind of a question as to whether that could actually happen in Libya, huh? I heard an analyst on NPR that uh, credited the behavior of the Egyptian army to the fact that they trained so closely with the U.S. Hmm. Yeah, and I also think, too, um, you know, I, I think perhaps in during the worst of the crisis in Egypt, um, President Obama was doing a little bit of that uh, walking softly and carrying a big, big stick because... Not only does the Egyptian army train with the U.S. Army, but we also uh, give them a lot of their funding, mm-hmm. and a lo- we we supply them with a lot of their uh, weapons and armor. So, um, you know, the White House had said during um, the protests in Egypt that if the Egyptian army attacked peaceful protesters, then if if that were the case. Um, then U.S. funding for the Egyptian army would be cut. So I think that they had a big economic incentive. I I mean, I don't want to overestimate the influence of the United States in this issue because obviously the Egyptian people, I mean, I'm just so overwhelmingly uh, impressed by their ability to pull off such a peaceful revolution. And I think, you know, I'm really, I have a lot of respect for the, leaders of the Egyptian army for refusing mm-hmm. to attack their own people. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that there were some positive U.S. Uh, foreign policy <laughs> in 
involved there that might have tipped the scales in the favor of peace, which is nice nice to hear that happening for once. And I think, you know, um, I wouldn't say that there's a direct connection, but it is just very interesting to me that Obama, President Obama, you know, low those many months ago, um, made a very crucial speech in Cairo, um, you know, talking about sort of the Middle East and, and America's sort of new, you know, orientation going forward, sort of ma- making a break between what the Bush administration's sort of policies had been and, you know, and then trying to define, you know, the Obama administration in a in a much newer direction, in a m- more multilateral way. So um, I wouldn't I say there's a direct that. connection, but I think it is kind of interesting. Yeah, I thought I thought when I saw the Cairo speech, I I personally thought it was really powerful in that it signaled a serious shift in U.S. philosophy mm-hmm. toward North Africa and the Middle East. You know, it it instead of the sort of cowboy diplomacy um, practiced by the Bush administration, you know, kind of our way or the highway type of thing. Right. I felt like um, in that speech in Cairo, President Obama was making overtures directly, not just to the, not really to the leaders of those countries, but directly to the people in those countries, mm-hmm. and and saying we do recognize you as people with an equal right to self-determination. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. we do think that your, you know, democracy is important in this region for your sake, not just because of our own economic interests and we would like to cooperate with you. And I felt like that was that marked that speech marked a serious policy shift um that the rest of the world seemed to take a lot of notice of, but I don't think that it was I don't think it made as much of a splash here in the United States. And I I do agree with you Cynthia. I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't attribute the events in Egypt to what President Obama said, but I do think that he might have helped things along just by, you know, signaling this change in, in U.S. foreign policy that that made uh, the people of Egypt perhaps more receptive to our help and cooperation than they had been in the past. Definitely. I And again, I'm with you. I, I credit the Egyptian people for just outstanding courage, you know, and, and um, a sense of common purpose and you know togetherness i've just been so impressed with how they've um really hung hung together and uh, despite you know all the injuries deaths um true risking of life and limb you know they've they've really uh stuck together in a very inspiring way um yeah. it sounds like we have another momocrat on the show who's able to join us right now melissa schober are you there oops um it <laughs> did i not um did i not see the is is that the um the note that I got? Are we no? She's online. I don't know if she hears us. But. Oh, okay. All right. Maybe um maybe we'll go back to her then. Um I did want to kind of talk a little bit about domestically what's been going on. Maybe if we could just sort of dip really quickly into sort of, you know, the ongoing um Wisconsin protests. Um, talking about inspiring, you know, social movements for maybe just five minutes longer, and then also, um, you know, then uh, maybe we can get to to our mid-Atlantic state commentator <laughs> and Mama. No, Pat. I think she can talk now. Okay. Melissa, are you there? I am here. Can you guys hear me? Oh, great! Yeah. Hi. Oh, great! Hi, Welcome, Melissa. Yeah. Oh, great. 
So um, do you just want to go ahead and launch into your discussion of Medicaid? Because I know you have some really important things to, to bring to everyone's attention there. Sure. I didn't I didn't want to interrupt the, the international foreign policy debate. But, um, oh, no worries. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just wanted to, to draw people's attention to, to two quick things. Um, one is that earlier this month, um, Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius issued a waiver to Arizona um, to remove more than a quarter million people from the Medicaid rolls in that state. Wow. Um, wow. So um, the, the reason that Arizona was seeking the waiver is just because, like every other state, they've got a big gaping hole in their budget. Um, and these people were covered under a, a waiver rather than traditional eligibility. And their waiver is expiring soon. Most Medicaid waivers last two years or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but under health care reform, there was something called maintenance of effort. That meant that you couldn't drop people who were receiving benefits off your rolls um, in an attempt to, in 2014, you know, not have as many people um, receiving services. But uh, apparently Arizona has won the argument from HHS. And um, although they were covered under a waiver, it's still pretty concerning to me. I mean, we're not talking about people who are making a lot of money. They're they're mostly childless adults in this category. Mm-hmm. Um, HHS did say that the kids um, of low-income parents would have to retain coverage. But, I mean, we're talking about some pretty poor adult people who are no longer going to have access to health care. Mm-hmm. Well, and Melissa, do you know, in the case of families, uh, who are affected by this cut? Um, are they are are they only covering the children in the families and not covering the parents? Is that the idea? Yeah, a lot of states only cover children and not parents um, mm-hmm. because the state children's health insurance program allows children and pregnant women to be covered right um, at an amount that exceeds the federal poverty line, which is really very very low. Um, in case you're interested, if anybody's interested, they can go and look up what the federal poverty line is. But it's like fourteen thousand dollars for a family of three. I mean, we're talking very, very low uh-huh. money. Um, so children, children will remain covered. And some states um, have applied for waivers to cover childless adults that are low income, um, either for all services or just for some services. Say, well, you can't have hospital services, but you can get um, outpatient services and drugs for preventative care. Um, well, and but, I'd like to point out quickly. Um, that Arizona, if for anyone who doesn't remember, is also the state where um, 100, about 100 people were kicked off of the organ donation lists because um, the governor decided that uh, Medi- <clears throat> Medicaid and Medicare should not have to pay for that. So it seems like they have an ongoing serious crisis in terms of people not getting um, very necessary health care. Yeah, and I, I feel like for Arizona, I mean, this is this is estimated according to healthcare finance news. It's estimated to save them a little over five hundred million dollars, which is about um, half of their billion one point one billion dollar shortfall. So it's not a small amount of money, but to some degree, this is sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face because many of these folks, I'm sure, will end up in emergency rooms, um, and hospitals can't write off bad debt forever. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of wondering what Arizona is going to do about a lot of childless adults suddenly flooding their ER for routine preventative care um, or even, you know, preventable conditions, for example, advanced diabetes or kidney failure that could have been prevented with proper and timely care. Well, and this seems like part of a theme to me, Melissa, because it's, you know, with the health care cuts that have been happening in states and the education cuts also, 
Um, it seems to me that these cuts that a lot of states are focusing on as ways to balance their budgets are the sort of thing that, you know, sh um, short-term gain, long-term loss. You know, I, I feel like when you're talking about cutting health care, just as you were saying, for people who can't afford, um, you know, to see the doctor unless they have assistance from the state, then those people, it's not like those people are not going to go see a doctor anyway. <laughs> if they're dying or if they're in need of serious care, you know, I mean, if you if if you need to go see a doctor, of course you're going to go, and the emergency rooms are required, as they should be, to provide care for people who are in need. And we all know, I mean, there have been numerous economic studies done that show that it's much more expensive in the long run um, if if people don't have a primary care doctor and do use the emergency room as their basically their primary care facility. So, um, you know, I understand that the states are facing a terrible budget crisis in many cases, but it seems like this is only going to prolong the economic pain um, because it's going to cost states more money down the road. I just That's wanted to I just wanted to pop in really quickly. This is Sin. Um, in, in at least one case, in the case of Wisconsin, we know that that budget crisis was sort of manufactured hmm. through um, you know whittling down what would have been a sort of break-even state budget by then giving away you know corporate tax breaks. But you know the governor himself did that. So um, you know that that is one case in which um, I think a GOP agenda operates wonderfully hand-in-hand hand with this sort of idea of scarcity and, you know, cutting to the bone, et cetera. I mean, this is sort of, it seems to me, one of their ways to, to show, to prove um, the proposition that, you know, big government is bad and it can't ever be competent or helpful to anyone in right. any way. Yeah. It's, and, the etern yeah. it's the eternal thing that the GOP does. They cut... Mm -hmm services, they, they gut the government's ability to provide useful services to people, and then they say, look, the government fails at providing useful services. Yeah. Let's make more cuts. I know. It's just a downward spiral. And and I think the other thing that concerns me, and I think Jaylith was talking a little bit about this, was um, you know, just letting sort of individual states now kind of, you know, take the reins on um, administering things like Medicaid. Like I know Texas has been saying they want to opt out of Medicaid also. And I think there's kind of another trend in that the Affordable Care Act, um, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa, on this. You're sort of the expert here. But my understanding was that there was going to be sort of a, a federalized um, kind of, of process to kind of get everyone on the same page. And then after that state, you know, after about 2014 or 2017, whatever the date is, then states would be allowed to sort of experiment on their own. And so now um, President Obama has recently said that with regard to the Affordable Care Act, that he's actually going to kind of let the states kind of go loose. And um, as long as they can hit like certain parameters, like, you know, no one can be excluded from whatever by a pre-existing condition. And you know, sort of meet like, you know, general sort of, you know, principles of the Affordable Care Act. Then states will have a lot of leeway to then go forward and figure out how they're going to implement, you know, exchanges and things like that. So, I mean, I live in I live in California, so in some ways I'm sort of like, yeah, you know, we had a single payer bill that passed the Senate and the the state Senate and the state Assembly twice, and then Governor Schwarzenegger, you know, didn't. <laughs> He didn't sign them. He vetoed them twice. And so, you know, now my hopes are all up because, like, wow, you know, we could actually 
our our final version, you know, the last iteration of the single payer bill, SB eight ten, I think it was, went through the um, the assembly, passed, and then you know, in our Democratic uh, Senate, you know, it has a good chance possibly of passing. And now with the Democratic governor Jerry Brown, we might conceivably knock on wood, pick your four leaf clover, get single state single payer. So like in yeah. some ways, it's very exciting. But I think what's disturbing is that you have like sort of your rogue states like Texas, perhaps Arizona in another instance where, you know, they're opting out of Medicaid. And so really how are they equipped to really kind of implement the Affordable Care Act in a really kind of, you know, way that is that has integrity, you know, and, and is at least makes a nodding acquaintance to the minimum standards supposedly set by the Affordable Care Act? Yeah. Well, right. Oh, go on. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on, Donna. Sorry. Oh, I would just like to point out one thing that, you know, in theory, Governor Brown is probably in favor of single payer, but with our $25 billion budget deficit, who knows what we're going to get. So I'm I'm not feeling super hopeful about California. Apart from from California and single payer, and I know there's some measure measures percolating in, in, in Vermont, Vermont about, about um, the, the single-payer single system, system, I think the, I think the, the really challenging piece of it is going to be that Obama wants to grant these waivers, and I think states should be creative with the kinds of programs that they can they can make. I mean, we've seen waivers, which are now almost a part of the regular Medicaid program, B and C waivers to provide services to people, home and community-based services mm-hmm. that were normally provided in an institution. States have gotten really creative and done some some amazing things. My problem with him announcing that this will take place in 2014 as opposed to 2017 is that mm-hmm. we still don't know what the basic benefit package for people right. is going to look like. Right. We don't. Yeah. We don't know what that's going to be. So if the basic benefit package is a good comprehensive package that every state must you know toe the line on, and from California to Texas, these are the basic benefits you have to cover, and it's everything that the U.S. preventative um, services task force recommends with an A or B, plus maybe a few other things, okay, experiment away. If you can do it better and still cover those services, you know, mm-hmm. awesome, go for it. But if well, the basic benefit package is, is weak, I worry a lot about yes. base getting creative yeah. with yes. a more limited benefit. Yes. And I'm I'm looking at this from Missouri where our Democrats are like California Republicans. <laughs> and you know, um our our former governor Matt Blunt um several years ago got elected and immediately cut uh tons of programs that were really vital healthcare programs in the state like he he shut down um, assisted living facilities for people with disabilities, and these people Whoa. had no place to go. Oh and he cut God. he cut people off the um, the Medicare rolls and or I'm sorry, Medicaid. And you know, a lot of the people who voted for him, a lot of the conservative rural Missouri voters who voted for him when he ran on this platform, when the cuts actually came to their neighborhood, were mortified by it. But by then, he was already governor, you know. Mm. And so I feel like, you know, I get nervous. I'm actually, as a Democrat, I'm a pretty, for a Democrat, I should say, I'm a pretty pro-states rights kind of gal. I kind of, I, I, I get excited about local government. But I think 
when you're talking about something of this magnitude, you know, the national health care plan that every other industrialized country has managed to figure out a better way of doing, you know, besides the United States, I, I, it really um, makes me nervous to think about letting these individual states, um, you know, have waivers to get out, essentially to get out of providing services that the federal government has mandated. So, um, you know, I just... I I feel like our health the federal health care plan is weak enough without states um you know more conservative states weakening it further. I mean, right. you know, it doesn't really it doesn't it's it's not really the sweeping change that uh, no. we yeah. were all hoping for in the no, first place. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. I just want to remind people again that when we when we talk about folks who are on Medicaid, um the thing that that really irritates me almost more than anything else is when people talk about Medicaid as this like silver-lined benefit package that does things that your private insurance doesn't do. Um, because a, not true. And B, Medicaid in most states and, and, and nationally, I mean, this is the, the national statistics, Medicaid covers mostly children and mostly elderly people who are in nursing homes and have exhausted their savings mm-hmm. and are now impoverished and need Medicaid benefits to cover them in long-term care institutions. Mm-hmm. The, the That's idea very that, true. The idea that childless adults are taking overwhelming advantage of this program is not the case, and the idea that people who are wealthy um, are somehow giving the system to take advantage of Medicaid, where in in a, a good scenario you're waiting, you know, six to nine months to see a Medicaid dentist, is just false. This, mm-hmm. this is this is this is a safety net package. It's a pair of last resort in states for people with no other option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want everyone to keep in mind when you're talking to your friends, family, relatives, you know, neighbors about Medicaid that mostly we're covering kids and mostly we're covering the elderly. And some disabled people who are um, covered by Medicare um, and are also low-income enough, Medicaid pays their Medicare premiums. Yeah, well, and I would say, too, Melissa, I actually have a personal experience with this because um, my son was on the Missouri State uh, chip insurance just for a few months um, after he was born because my husband had lost his job immediately before uh, we discovered I was pregnant. <laughs> so, you know, um, so my son was covered when he was born because of our, our loss of income um, for a little while on on F-CHIP before my husband could, you know, get family insurance again at his new job that he eventually, thankfully, got. And... Um, you know, we were actually, I remember, you know, my son had a tumor on his skull that was a millimeter from his brain when he was just a baby that had to be removed. And we were um, going to see, this was before we had switched over to our private insurance. We were just having an evaluation done before his surgery that happened later. And we were in a a really reputable children's hospital uh, here in St. Louis. I won't say which one. But um, they... We were we had come in just to get a, a CT scan done, and of course, you know when a baby gets a CT scan, they're not allowed to eat for 12 hours beforehand because they have to sedate them. And so, um, you know, my my little baby boy there was it just kept getting pushed again and again to the end of the line. Um, like everybody, everybody who had private insurance who came in that day, even though we had an appointment was allowed to get their test done before us. And so at the end of the day, we'd been there for eight hours. Oh, my God. Past our appointment time before this baby 
of mine got seen. And, you know, that really, you know, I mean, we're middle-income people now, and this is, this is not something that we live with anymore, but it really gave me a lot of perspective on, you know, what it's like to use these public health services. They're not, they're, they're far from, you know, cash cow programs, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, and, and the way people who use them are treated by uh, the medical community is, is not always great. So I agree with you, Melissa. That was a long way of saying that. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah. And, and particularly for some more specialized services, um, <clears throat> medical testing, and, and particularly dental care, it can be nigh impossible to get a provider to see you in any kind of reasonable time frame because the reimbursement rates for Medicaid are, are really very low. Um, and many providers have stopped or are considering stopping seeing Medicaid recipients because the amount of paperwork that's required for billing and reimbursement for Medicare and Medicaid um, recipients in, in most states is, is really a, a high a high burden for them, particularly for small single practitioner or dual practitioner offices when you're talking about, you know, maybe one person doing all your billing. And then the rules, combination of service rules and who you can be seen and when for Medicaid recipients can be more complicated than private insurance rules. Um, and so many providers say, you know what, it's just too much of a headache for me and I'm, I'm not going to see any of these folks. Um, so it it is a big problem in states, um, particularly for people who are medically fragile, have complex health conditions or overlapping chronic disease to get the kind of care that they need. And it's a problem I think we're going to be talking about for many weeks to come, huh, Melissa? Uh, I do, I do. But thank you so much. Well, thank you. We're going to um, move on to other topics. You're welcome to stay on the line with us because I know you'll have something to say. <laughs> and uh, before we do, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Bubble Genius. Last week, Cinematic and I went to the, their factory, so to speak, their home-based factory where they make these vegan-friendly products and uh, got to see what they're actually doing, and try them out. And uh, it was really, really fun. We came back with bags full of good-smelling stuff that our kids would love. My daughter took this little cupcake bath bomb, which smells delightful. And, uh, you know, it, it's really a pleasure to have a, a company like that sponsoring this show. Um Absolutely, they they make they make our shows possible. So thank you yeah. very much. And once again, I would like to talk about the Buy a Soldier a Shower campaign, where you can order. They've got a special line of products that they've uh, created to send to our military who are busy fighting these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and these people need all kinds of things, but a lot of them are asking for soap. So you can buy a soldier a foo bar of soap, some whoop-ass hand balm, or one of these other things. Just go to BubbleGenius.com and click on the Buy a Soldier a Shower campaign. Well, with that, I just wanted to kind of sum up a few points that, that have come out in our discussion on um, 
the um, issue with Medicaid and, and possibly also the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and how it is that children and our seniors really get, you know, the folks on the really young and the really old um, parts of the age spectrum really get pushed to the margins when um, it seems like push comes to shove legislatively. And um, I know that... Um, those of us who are moms often sort of feel that we have been getting the short end of the stick in terms of, uh, you know, what's been going on in various um, legislate, state legislatures um, in terms of anti-choice. Um, so I think, you know, generally we, we have been talking about um, how there is kind of a, a war on women, that with the um, with the inauguration of this sort of new GOP majority in the House, and then obviously in, I think, more than 20 states in the state legislatures, as well as GOP governors, that we've really seen this kind of really stepped-up activity, and it's, um, to my mind, a, a real cause for concern. Um, and I would even argue that this war on women extends to um, the education cuts that have been proposed Again, you know, in a very vulnerable population that's not capable of voting. Um, and, you know, with regard to anti-union, um, anti-teacher kind of rhetoric that is uh, really seems more about busting unions than it is about true education reform. And, again, we know that many of those teachers are mostly women. It's a profession that is still, you know, after all these years, um, very much women. So, Right. I, and, right. and I think... Oh, go, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, go ahead, Jane. I was just going to say, I think also, um, you know, it fits into the war on women idea in that women are often the ones needing to find education solutions for their children, whether they're married or not. It's yeah. often the woman making that decision. And so, um, you know, when funding is cut to public schools, it, it puts another burden, especially on working single mothers who have to have their children in school during the day in order to keep earning a salary. So That's right. And that's that really leads me to something that we've been working on a lot at K-12 News Network. Um, and the top story there is a legislative alert on H.R. 1, which is the big bill out of the gate that was passed in the House and um, has to do with sort of, um, you know, reauthorizing on a stopgap kind of measure, um, you know, the fact that we have no sort of formal budget that's been authorized. And so it was due to go up at, you know, expire at certain points and has been sort of, you know, extended in a stopgap measure. Um, since then, I think one date that was supposed that was coming up close was March 4th for um, the expiration of sort of federal budget expenditures. And so, you know, the pressure is really kind of on to find some sort of middle ground. And I think at, it, luckily it's been renewed for two weeks. So if mm -hmm. I'm uh, calculating correctly, that means we have until March 18th or so to, um, you know, make our voices heard. Now, a lot of these things have already passed the House in one version or another. Um, There's sort of continuing resolutions and, and, you know, legislative maneuvers that I'm not entirely familiar with in a, in a really granular way. But uh, basically, there's a package of cuts uh, that have been proposed to the federal budget um, that passed the House and are now going to be considered by the Senate. And those kinds of things, I'm finding, you know, if you take sort of what the House GOP majority has proposed and passed, you'll find that it directly undercuts what everything that o President Obama laid out in his State of the Union win the future speech. <laughs> so, um, for example, on the K-12 News Network site where I talk about this, 
um, I got a, a legislative update from the National Science Teachers Association and, and STA, and they were basically saying that, you know, there's like 180 million that's designated to be cut out of the Math and Science Partnership Program from the Department of Education. This is to, like, help teachers um, with professional development and, you know, keeping up to date on both new advances in science and then, you know, new techniques and how to teach it. Um, similar kinds of programs, about $166 million cut from the National Science Foundation, Education and Human Resources Directorate. Um, Title I funding, which I think Title I schools are the ones that are most in need, um, often yeah. high, high poverty areas, et cetera. Children, you know, who face, um, you know, who, who are who face hunger and you know ha are in situations where there may be high crime, et cetera. Parents with addiction or other kinds of issues like that. You know, the kids most in need. About 693 million cut from those services, and that's you know about a million, just under a million at-risk youth that are now even exposed to greater risk because they have even less of a safety net. And along with that, it's probably about 9,000 education jobs, you know, on a chopping block. And then most worrisome, or, you know, among the very worrisome things, about $557 million proposed in cuts to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act um, for, that goes to the states. And so we all know, I think there's something like about 43 states right now that are sort of ver on the verge of bankruptcy, so to speak, uh, you know, have incredible budget shortfalls that everyone is, you know, scrambling, wondering how they're going to make up. Um, and, you know, the, the, these are the programs that are for special education, for people with learning disabilities, um, you know, and... I think we we can we can all either think of or know personally, um, you know, a child, a family, um, who who may be in that position, you know, maybe on the autism spectrum or you know have a disability like blindness or you know something like that, either yeah. physical or developed. Yeah. Well, and, that's, um, yeah. I mean, as you know, Sin, I'm the parent of a yeah. child who's in need of special. Uh, special education yeah. services. So, about it. yeah, and especially your case in Missouri, what it's like for you. Well, um, okay, so I have a son with sensory processing disorder and also a motor skills delay, which causes him some issues in the classroom in that he has a lot of difficulty um, maintaining attention, sitting still, and his motor skills issues cause him a lot of difficulty with writing. He's, I, I mean, I'm biased, but I'll say he's a brilliant kid, but, um, you know, he does need help, especially with handwriting and cutting and all of those wonderful fine motor things that are the mainstay of kindergarten and first grade classrooms, right? And um, uh, we, uh, you know, we struggled mightily to get my son access to appropriate services even before these cuts were taking place on the federal and state level. Now, here in Missouri, um, my sister works for the St. Louis Area Special School District which provides services to all of the districts in the St. Louis and City, St. Louis City and St. Louis County, and um, I I know from speaking with her that this year um, they're going to be cutting literally hundreds of positions, mm. uh, including um, what my sister does is she is a classroom aide to children who can function in a mainstream classroom and can even thrive in a mainstream classroom but need assistance. She's worked with blind children who needed help 
interpreting what was going on in the classroom. She's worked with autistic children at the elementary level where it is just so important to catch these children early and get them the help that they need so that they can grow up, go to college, get jobs, become productive citizens who contribute to the economy. I mean, you know, as as a parent of a child with special needs, I've done a lot of research on this, and I know for a fact the Pew Center actually did a study that said for every dollar that is spent on early childhood intervention programs for all children, not just children with recognizable uh, learning disabilities or other disabilities, for every dollar that you spend in the United States, we get a $5.70 return on investment. Yeah. And Money that well is. Spent. Money yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I know that in the States, there have been severe funding cuts. Here in my own state of Missouri, um, our Democratic governor just in February proposed a budget that would cut $4 million from the Parents as Teachers program. Ouch. Now, moms of of toddlers know what this is, right? Parents mm-hmm. as teachers, they send parent educators in to work with parents and train you to recognize, not only to, to do educational activities with your kids, but to recognize early on symptoms of a developmental delay, right? The Parents as Teachers program, which incidentally was founded in Missouri, mm-hmm. um, they they actually helped a lot with my son. You know, they were able to refer us for a special needs evaluation through our local district. Um, because they caught his motor skills delay when he was just a toddler. Now imagine, you know, for a kid with a motor skills delay, I I, I started my son in occupational therapy when he was one and a half years old. Imagine if I had waited until he was five or six, how much more difficulty, you know, a kid would be having under those circumstances. And so um, I think, you know, it's it's really disturbing to me that here in the state where PAT was founded, you know, our Democratic governor is proposing a $4 million cut, and that's on top of $3.4 million in cuts that were made by the state legislature here last year. So the states are cutting funding to children with disabilities and children with special needs at an alarming rate. Um, and to have the federal government doing it, too, I think I think this is us saying that we're going to abandon a generation of children. Yeah, and I'm, I think I'm, that it's a terrible decision in terms of investment, just economically speaking, but it's also a moral failure on our part. And I think what's happening is that we have so many states on the on the brink that the federal money is really kind of the only safety net that's left. You know, we saw this with the Recovery Act. A lot of the Recovery Act funding kept teachers from being fired, you know. Um, and uh, now that the Recovery Act um, stimulus funding has has dwindled away as it was designed to, you know, now we're having to face the ugly reality that, um, you know, the federal budget is sort of the only place we can turn to now, given these state cuts. It's it's really worrisome, really, really. It worrisome. is, and and you know, this is Melissa. I, I live in in Baltimore City, and. I don't know if I doubt that every school, but I would say a majority of schools are Title One in Baltimore City. There is, you know, major un, an underemployment. There's major poverty. Um, there's major amounts numbers of kids who are on free or reduced price school lunch, school breakfast, tons of programs, mm-hmm. and the, the the state and the city have budget holes and have really relied on the federal money to try to implement some new programs. We have a new, relatively new superintendent, Andres Almanza, who came to us from New York. 
um, has, who has been doing some, some pretty innovative things, and I would like to point out working with the teachers' union. Um, and, and I really, you know, as the parent of a child who's not school age yet, but a few years away, was really looking with some hope for what was going on in the city schools and in my neighborhood schools. Mm-hmm. And I'm now really, really concerned that with these cuts, we're going to lose all the ground that we've made over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as busy as we all are trying to hang on to the jobs that we're lucky enough to have, if we have them, <laughs> um, as well as doing just the, the work of child rearing and on top of that any kind of volunteering that we do at the schools and let's face it, you know, parent teacher organizations or parent teacher associations, PTAs, we look around and it's mostly women. You know, I mean I think this is just sort of the gender politics of of the situation. And um, you know, I think as busy as we all are, I think I'm hearing from so many different kinds of grassroots groups of parents that we are we're really reaching a breaking point ourselves. Yeah. You know, there's no yeah. more time to be had out of the day to volunteer. <laughs> you know, you yeah. have sort of like de facto school librarians who's ba- that's basically, you know, a parent volunteer that's kind of taken on that, you know, because perhaps that position had to be cut or what have you. Or if your school is unfortunate enough to not even have a library, right? You know, we know there are schools in those situations. But, you know, there's no more time to be had out of the day and there's no more money. And I think that is really kind of pushing parents to say, you know what, this 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 has to stop. We have to find a way to fund our schools. We have to find a way to fund our schools and, you know, we have to insist on this. And so um, what I've done at K-12 News Network, at least, is I've partnered up with an uh, with a a new project called popvox.com. And basically what they do is um, they've been working to kind of provide a better conduit for grassroots groups, authentic grassroots groups, to have access to legislative aids and, you know, sort of congressional, uh, you know, offices so that it's no longer just um, an onslaught of, you know, email petitions that have all the same exact verbiage and, you know, you kind of feel like, well, I should sign, but then you also sort of think, well, yeah, I'm not really sure what the impact of this is, even though I may feel strongly about this issue. So what Popbox does is um, it's hoping to build, you know, that conduit to to legislative offices. And I know in um, the piece that I put up on on the legislative update, um, that it seems uh, Senator Tom Harkin and Senator Patty Murray, uh, Harkin of Iowa and Murray of um, Washington State, uh, have shown, you know, that they are really kind of displeased with a lot of these areas where it's cut. Um, I just want to remind people that in his State of the Union address where he talked about winning the future, President Obama outlined, you know, we're going to increase STEM education. Well, the cuts that I talked about earlier uh, to the National Science Foundation and uh, and elsewhere to the you know the, the part of the Department of Education that oversees STEM education uh, and professional training for teachers. Those are precisely the areas you know where it's like some you know one billion dollars worth that's slated to be cut. <laughs> uh, um, so you know it's as if. Um, 
it's as if in HR 1, you know, they listened politely to the speech and then went directly to the bill and in writing the bill, you know, struck out all the things that President Obama had outlined as, you know, wanting to increase. He spoke about adding, you know, 100,000 more teachers, I believe, um, you know, to bring down some class sizes. And we know that class size is often how children um, learn better because, they, you know, there's just less going on and the teacher can focus more on the students that are there, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you contrast this with stories that you hear about in Detroit where they're now having a high school in a district, in the Detroit City District, where they're asked to make budget cuts that will result in 60 students per one teacher. I mean, I don't That's know how. Insane. I don't know. I don't know how sixty students, sixty well, high school students, and I, can learn. I have to say, I have to say, Sin. You know, I mm-hmm. went um, to some pretty underfunded public schools in the St. Louis area when I was in elementary school, and one of the schools that I went to had forty students with one teacher, and our desks. You know, this was a room designed for twenty or thirty kids, so you. The desks were sta- were pushed together so tightly that you couldn't get to the desks in the back of the room without actually physically climbing over desks mm-hmm. to get to to get to the desks in the back. And um, you know, I just think I I wish that I you know sixty students per teacher is worse than that, and we shouldn't be moving backward. You know, and and I know that. Um, the economic crisis has led to a lot of cuts in every area. But I just think when it comes to education, you know, it's just such an incredibly important investment in our country's future. I mean, the president and the administration and everybody in Congress, they all go on about how important it is to compete um, with other developed and developing countries who are currently outpacing us in math and science. You know, I mean, we're talking about the future, not just of our children, but of our economy and our status in the world. And I think, you know, I mean, what what the administration and what many people in Congress are saying is so different from what they're doing in terms of protecting and increasing education funding. I mean, just in January, uh, Secretary of Education Ernie Duncan was saying high-quality early Childhood education programs are the best investment our country can make, mm-hmm. and I agree yeah. with them. But, but you know, what is this gap between what they preach and what they practice? I really feel like I know that cuts need to be made, but they need to be made someplace else than education. Well, they need to raise revenue too, and you know that gets us right back to that whole debate about extending tax cuts to the upper one percent. I mean, you can't just close the gap with cuts. We all try that in our own family budgets, and at some point, you have to go and get a second job because you got to raise revenue. This is true. Well, and Donna, um, I I don't know if you saw recently. Mother Jones published a really interesting on um, the. <laughs> the income gap, the growing income gap. In yeah, the United States. I did see that. Yeah, and I, I encourage all of our listeners to go to Mother Jones and look at this graphic if you haven't already because it's astonishing. It shows that for the top 1% of earners in the United States, incomes have been rising, you know, skyrocketing over yeah. the past several decades while they've remained flat or even for some income levels declined 
for, um, you know, regular middle class and working class Americans. And I think, you know, when you look at that and you think about the fact that we've been over time decreasing and decreasing the tax mm-hmm. rate on the wealthiest Americans. I mean, you know, it used to be in this country, and this was when America was still a capitalist country. There have been times in the United States when the highest tax bracket was 80%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was when what was good for GM was good for America. I mean, that's right. what they said, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? And, um, oh, go on. One other thing on that graphic, and I think we've got the link on the Momocrats Facebook page. I think mm-hmm. I put that up last week. Mm-hmm. But one other thing that was interesting was to show how wealthy our legislators are. Yes, that too. You know, they have yeah. a hard time relating to the common person because it's been a long time since many of them were common people. I forget what was that statistic, Donna? Was it fifty percent of people in Congress are millionaires? Like just something like that. Yeah. I'll find that. And I think I think that's a really good point because right now the moneyed interests are controlling our government in in many ways. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there are these Congress people who are literally millionaires, and even those of them who are self-made millionaires. You know, if it's been a few years since you've had to live. Paycheck to paycheck, I think people do start to lose their perspective on what it's like for average Americans. And then the other thing is, you know, even all the members of Congress are subject right now to, um, you know, this system where corporations and wealthy donors, you know, push their pet legislation and, and back it up by making enormous donations to political campaigns. And I think, you know, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision uh, that allowed corporations to make unlimited, you know, ad campaign (laughs) donations for um, politicians, I think, you know, has only worsened this situation where a very small group of very wealthy people have an incredible amount of power over the rest of us in the United States. And I am a capitalist. I'm a small business owner, as a matter of fact. And, you know, I'm a pro-business person, but I'm also a pro-human person. <laughs> and I think that the only way we can continue to thrive in, as a nation is if we, can t- is if we you know, do something to address this fact that while this economic crisis is still affecting 95% of our population, there's a group for whom the recovery has already happened, and they're holding the purse strings in the federal government right now, and they don't see a reason to share with the rest of us. And I think that's something that's an issue that we're going to have to resolve, you know, through protests like the labor protests in Wisconsin um, and however else we can. I just wanted to mention also really briefly that um, what was so delightful and hilarious about um, the comic <laughs> who uh, called up Gov- uh, Governor Walker and said <laughs> that he was one of the Koch brothers uh, you know, wanting to see how, you know, his governor minion was, was carrying out these anti-labor uh, <laughs> kinds of policies, um, and, and the governor was responding like an employee to his boss, reporting back, you know, and I and it was obviously a prank, but uh, I think that was just a really wonderful piece of culture jamming that I think cut through a lot of noise and hopefully rang a bell with 
people who might identify themselves as conservative and or may have voted for Governor Walker. I mean, I think that right now in Wisconsin and in Ohio and in Indiana where, you know, these anti-union um, attempts are really, uh, you know, gearing up, um, if not uh, full-fledged, I think that you're starting to see people have a little, more than a little bit of voters' remorse. You know, voters remorse thinking like, you know, I just thought he was some regular guy that was going to be about making government small and this and that and the other thing. But I didn't realize he was in the pocket of the Koch brothers. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, just to kind of tie it back to last week's um, show where we spoke with uh, the woman from South Dakota, Kelsey, um, she pointed out that the reason that we're getting a lot of this cookie-cutter, um, exact same boilerplate anti-choice legislation is that it's a coordinated effort by the Thomas yes. More Society and uh, what's-his-name, um, somebody, Cassidy, Harold Cassidy, I believe, is the attorney. So it's really, you know, a very coordinated onslaught to um, bring all of these pieces of legislation, which all have the same exact wording, you know, all came from the same photocopy machine, basically, and, uh, you know, and start this kind of, um, you know, coordinated kind of attack. And, and, and I all think, paid for by the same people. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I haven't been able to draw the lines adequately heading back to whatever funder is behind the Thomas More Society and, you know, Harold Cassidy, whatever, but... You know, I would not be surprised if all roads did lead back to the Koch brothers in some ways. You know, many things do seem to be funded by them. Um, right. I don't I exactly know. A lot of pies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, although, I mean, although I have to say, you know, it's not just them. I think, I think no. sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm as ready to, uh, you know, accuse the Koch brothers of, of conspiracy as anyone else, but, uh, or any other liberal, I should say. <laughs> but I do have to say, I think that a lot of times, you know, they get trotted out as sort of the the poster men of, um, you know, moneyed interests that are trying to control Washington. And I bet there are a lot of other wealthy uh, corporate owners who are also involved. Like, sure. I mean, for instance, Target. You, I, I'm yeah. sure you guys remember that yeah. huge kerfuffle with with. Target donating to, you know, anti-gay uh, legislators, and I don't know. I just think I think we, you know, I, I, as much as the Koch brothers are involved, I think that it's important for us to look to look at the other folks who are involved also, and and try and figure out, you know, how much are we all of us supporting, um, you know, the efforts of moneyed interests to undermine the interests of the working and middle-class Americans, um, you know, when we shop at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but, you know, I'll look at OpenSecrets.org. I'm sure that most of the momocrats know, but for people who might be tuning in, I mean, Open Secrets um, amasses election filings from candidates, federal candidates, and we can see who's donating to them and who they're accepting money from and what parties and where it's going and how much year to year and I always peek in there to see what my Congress folks are doing, my senators and reps, um, just, just to get a sense of, of what kind of interest they might be beholden to. So when I call them and meet with their staff, I have an idea that, you know, yesterday they received a donation or last year they received a donation of X, and so I need to talk about why, despite that donation, it's still really important for them to do thing Y, which is the right thing to do. 
Right, right. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I think um, if nothing else, the medical loss ratio, the idea that a certain percentage of your dollar should go to your medical care, which is what you're paying for, versus, you know, whatever 20 30% goes to insurance company overhead, I think that was very key in instructing a lot of us that, hey, you know, if you buy something, your dollar that goes to that corporation shouldn't you know, a portion of that should not be going to undermine your rights <laughs> and, you know, and the and the freedoms that you enjoy and the kinds of things that matter on a legislative level. I mean, I think that's kind of what I took away from it and hence, you know, the very sort of conscientious sort of shopping that I've instituted since then. Um, I did want to kind of go back to um, education. Um, as, as mentioned before, there are just so many dire cuts and, uh, you know, with the federal sort of federal funding, safety net, you know, looking like it's going to get cut out from under us. I really urge people to reach out to your senators. Um, Senator Harkin from Iowa, who is one of the Democrats, the two Democrats that have spoken up publicly, having grave reservations about the kinds of priorities indicated in these budget cuts, has said, you know, this is like eating our seed corn. When are we going to learn? So I would urge you to contact him. Um, I've set up a, a, a legislative action page at popvox.com through um, K-12 News Network for people to do that. Um, I think, you know, the more we raise our voices and the more that we make it clear that this is unacceptable, they'll just have to find some other way of making a cut, maybe over in the military (laughs) somewhere, Um, or as Donna suggested, raising revenue on, you know, corporate interests that somehow manage to evade, you know, have giant loopholes that you can drive a truck through. Um, I think we really need to reset the conversation because this is just not acceptable. You know, we've gone beyond the breaking point here, and I think a lot of parents are standing up and realizing that. I know in California there's Educate the State, um, which is an effort to ask Jerry Brown um, to put on the special election coming up this summer uh, that we vote to extend current taxes in our state so that, yes, there will still be shortfalls, but they won't be so dire. Um, And next week, uh, we have a tentative commitment from Leonie Himpson, who is an organizer behind Parents Across America, who is one of these folks who's been active on trying to get class sizes smaller, active on education issues and organizing, especially organizing parents. And now she's trying to get a national effort of parents together so that we can all bring our voices together and focus you know, focus that energy on the targets where it's going to have the most good. So next week, you know, tune in. We'll be talking to the founder of Parents Across America and also highlighting a bunch of these parent organizations that are truly authentically grassroots, you know, and uh, that are, are banding together to try to get, you know, the changes that we need in these kinds of budgets. So um, that's basically, I didn't want people to end on a note of despair. <laughs> And I also wanted to highlight that, you know, people are starting to get active and to please, you know, reach out, find out who in your community, maybe it's your local PTA, I don't know, but, um, you know, find out uh, where you can get people of like mind to stand up with you and say, you know, this has to, this, these cuts have to end, um, you know, and you're going to have to cut elsewhere or you're going to have to raise revenue elsewhere. Because you know this is this this is essential. We cannot not educate our young people, and that you know that covers 1.5 million college students who are going to be affected by Pell Grant cuts uh, if HR1 passes the Senate. So we have two weeks. Raise your voice. Make a lot of noise. 
Very good, Sin. I'm glad that you uh oh, my dog's making noise, so uh, he's <laughs> he's uh, getting into it. But I'm glad that we're ending with something to do, with some advocacy because that really is the point of of doing all of this. We want to be informed and we want to be able to make our voices heard. Yeah, definitely a call to action. So, um anyway, I guess that's about it for our show today. Um, thank you, Sin, Jaylith, and Melissa for calling in. And uh, we'll see you next week at this time. And uh, once again, thanks to the folks at BubbleGenius.com for making Mama Chats possible. Thanks. Thanks, thanks. everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.